0: You're watching The Lie of the Land with Kevin Lings. And it's a complicated world that we live in, Kevin. So I thought we'd take some time on a regular basis to unpack the environment. There are many people in South Africa with so many different data points that we're looking at that it gets really confusing. So perhaps we start with South Africa. And of course, there are big themes in the world as well that we need to take into account. We're not an island. So I'm going to open it up to you in terms of what has been occupying you on the economics desk today.
1: So I suppose today there is some data out in South Africa. I guess uh, there's a little bit of focus on our trade balance, another phenomenal trade surplus. It's not the type of number though that really impacts the markets. It's more a, a sort of data point that you pay attention to and kind of see what the trend is and. And that trend is what you would expect. We're doing exceptionally well in our exports of commodities. That's very much a price effect. There's no real volume. So we're not able to, unfortunately, move a huge amount of volume because um, of the uh, pick-up in commodity prices. But at least we've got the price effect. And as a result, our trade surplus is spectacular. And there's no doubt that it helps us. But given how strong the trade balance is, you've seen that the RAND is weakened, which gives you some idea of how powerful the international forces are and how they are affecting emerging markets broadly. So we can come to that in a sec, but I guess the trade balance a little bit of a focus. And then the other data point, uh, certainly the government, uh, we get an update once a month on government finances. In particular, we focus on how much tax revenue government is collecting, and another great month for government in terms of tax revenue. And a, and this is obviously uh, ahead of the uh, November midterm budget. budget. So 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 there's no doubt that government, at the time of the mini budget, is going to be able to show that tax revenue is done exceptionally well. And a lot of that tax revenue is companies, is mining companies, and that seems to be holding up. But I guess the key point coming through in the data is that there are other areas of tax that are surprising on the upside. It's not as if it's just the mining companies. We've got decent personal income tax and decent VAT collection. Only two areas where it's weak, and that's import duties, because we're not importing much at the moment. And the second is excise duties, things like the selling of petrol, the selling of Alcohol, uh, tobacco, those sorts of things—not all that vibrant, but no surprise there. We know that the, the well, problems with COVID of it, I mean, and alcohol. You know,
0: most of it's been banned. I mean, you you look at tobacco and and alcohol. I mean, the bans over the COVID period must have really impacted those sectors. But I want to come back to the rand before we go off the rand, because this is the question. And and again, you know, we've had so many conversations over the years where it's it's tantamount to taking out your crystal ball and saying well this is the direction of the RAND but the weakness that we are seeing now as you say there are macro global factors impacting the the RAND you must be forecasting as far as you can where you expect the currency to go and and lots of people who are saying well you know is South Africa a viable destination to live in if the RAND continues to weaken, you know, and there are all these other issues, should we be leaving the country? What do you say to them when they ask you?
1: Look, I don't think you, you you must equate the two, right? I don't think you must look at the currency's performance and make a decision around living or not in South Africa. Um, the RAND is, is, the pressure that the RAND is experiencing is, is to a large extent dollar strength. It's not as if the rand is in isolation and somehow the rand has been picked on on its own. That's not fair right now. Um, so I think those, those are different arguments. In terms of the factors that are impacting currency, a lot of factors around China and the concern, uh, many factors in China, Evergrande, the property developer, still a concern. The fact that China has scaled back electricity and other forms of production, still a concern. The fact that China itself has got this common prosperity program they've introduced and it is disrupting certain sectors. So you've got a China effect, which is very substantial. At the same time, you've got the US Federal Reserve talking about the start of QE tapering. You've got clear evidence of inflation picking up around the world, which suggests higher interest rates. So it's a melting pot of a range of uncertainties. The net effect of that is that it's causing people to be unsure, hesitant, and they're going into safe haven assets and the safest at this stage is the dollar. And because the dollar is so strong at the moment, it's putting everybody under pressure and obviously the RAND's under pressure. The problem for us is I can't see that pressure easing anytime soon. It's not as if just suddenly all of these concerns are going to dissipate. So in the short term, you would expect the RAND to remain under pressure. By short term, I mean the next couple of weeks, next couple of months. Beyond that, though, I think that um, the rand is now over is is now undervalued it's weaker than it ought to be there's an opportunity for the currency to pull back we do think that South Africa will start to implement some better reforms next year some private public partnerships get investment going a little bit the energy sector looks a lot more encouraging so I don't think uh, I certainly wouldn't be making a decision saying South Africa's uninvestable I would be moving money out I think you want to have a decent Percentage of your investment offshore, anyway. Um, but I think that right so, now so the currency is under uh, yeah.
0: Kevin, you're pro South Africa as an investment destination.
1: I am pro South Africa in in the sense that it's you've been past the worst of it. You've you. If, I, if you delve into what's going on underneath, there are a lot of significant issues that are being dealt with, either in terms of policy within the president's office, in terms of corruption, or, uh, in terms of uh, the NPA. Unfortunately, a lot of that stuff, I don't think gets out enough. And I think that, that if I look at the developments that are being put in place, I'm encouraged rather than uh, have a negative feel. I do think it's a long road ahead, but I think you're going to see some of the some of the benefits of the changes that are being made over the next couple of months, and then hopefully the environment feels a bit better.
0: You mentioned the medium-term budget here in South Africa, which is uh, approaching pretty quickly, and uh, it's going to be a relatively soft landing for Minister Gordon given the fact that he's going to have good news with, as you say, commodity companies having helped the environment from a tax perspective so effectively?
1: Without a doubt. he's he's He has got the best set of circumstances to do an inaugural budget speech. It doesn't get much better, really, because he's He's coming off such a low base of so many factors that are negative. They All we know about them, he can now present an environment that just looks a hell of a lot better. And yes, in, in total, it's still a problem. It's not as if we're suggesting that he can present a budget that looks somehow miraculously better. But if you think about it, he's got the tax revenue, which is going to be over $100 billion Rand more than he budgeted for in South Africa. That makes a difference. He's got a GDP, which uh, is 11% bigger than what he had. So his debt to GDP is going to change considerably. And he knows that um, in terms of economic forecasts, he's not far out uh, when you look over the next couple of years. So it's not as if he's got to make radical changes to the economic outlook. So he can present a budget instead of the debt being at 80% and rising further. He can present a government debt that is at 70% and well under control. And he can show that um, there's no need to suddenly increase taxes. There's no need to make radical policy decisions. It's about just being a little bit more disciplined and and trying to implement private-public partnerships. So I think he can represent a good messenger. The credit rating agencies are going to like it. We don't think there's any more credit rating downgrades in store for South Africa. So I think the message is going to surprise people in terms of, okay, this is not as bad as we thought.
0: Now, you must have been privy to many dinner table conversations where people are throwing in the towel and leaving South Africa. And you're right. I mean, the yeah. round is not a good uh, benchmark to say that that's the reason to leave the country. But, I mean, with your relatively pro-South Africa stance, do you find yourself defending the position of a South African and that, as you say, it's not as bad as we are potentially making it?
1: I think so. So It's a big topic and it comes up all the time. Um, I can't remember having a a meeting or a lunch or something where it doesn't get discussed. I can understand the increase in negative perception when it came to the unrest and looting in July um, and absolutely that was a scary moment and that could have got way out of hand in, in South Africa and it remains a risk if you look at what service It can happen. It tells us that that can happen at any time, and we know the police are fairly useless in dealing with that, and therefore this thing could get out of hand, and that remains a risk. So we can't be naive to that risk. The issue that I think we miss in South Africa a lot, and we get this when we talk to foreigners who look at emerging markets, and and they don't see it the same way. They see South Africa is a messy emerging market, right? And so when you open the door, do you want to see Switzerland? Because you're not going to see that. And, and I worry that you wake up in South Africa thinking that you want to live in Switzerland and then getting upset that you find you're living in a messy emerging market. South Africa is a full-on messy emerging market. It will remain a messy emerging market. If you go to Brazil, it's as messy. Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, you pick the emerging market. It is as messy or even messier. So then you've got to have a perspective. Is it that you want to live in Europe? Well, then you're in the wrong country altogether. And if you wake up every day thinking that outside is going to be Europe, in everything you see, do, and encounter, you're just naive. And I think that that imbalance in balancing people's thoughts is critical to how you perceive this country and how you're willing to take risk. And in this country, I think we want to see Switzerland before we take risk, whereas the reality, it's in a messy emerging market. Get used to it, learn to live with it, and learn to make money in a messy emerging market. As I said, it's a big and topic that's, and it that's gets you
0: word. That's the operative word. There's opportunity in the mess, isn't there?
1: Without a doubt, there's a huge amount of opportunity. There's opportunity in all of these emerging markets. And none of them are, in, are a smooth path from A to B. None of them have pristine politics and some sort of corruption issue. They all are messy by definition. So what do you do? Do you say to yourself, well, I can deal with that environment, I can learn that environment, and I can make my way in that environment? And I think but, that but, Kevin, perspective in, is good.
0: And I throw in there some of the alarming numbers. Highest unemployment in the world. Structural sure. problems that we're not going to solve. Huge, huge issues of inequality, which could lead to further looting and rioting. As you inferred earlier, this is still a risk. Is that not something that has escalated as a risk in your book?
1: Yes. So, so, so yes, each country, when you look at it, I mean, how, look at how many coups there have been in uh, Thailand. Um, so, so then you would be you would be saying the same. If we were doing this interview in Thailand, you'd be saying, "But, but, Kevin, what about all the coups that we have?" So each country has its peculiarities. I'm in no way dismissing this as a crisis, as an issue. It's a massive issue. And the risk around looting and unrest has gone up, and we know that, and we can see that in the data and in in our TV sets are telling us. And it can happen at any time. And if the government doesn't deal with it, it will happen again. So it's a very imminent, a very real risk. But I would just add to that that every emerging market has its own set of real risks. Its own set of income inequality and, and, and social dynamics and whether it's got to do with drug cartels or kidnapping of individuals, they all have their own issues. What do you expect when you live in an emerging market? Yes, we all want it to get better, but this is our reality. And does that mean automatically you disinvest and you move into I don't know where? I'm not convinced that's the right way to think about it. You've got to make a better decision around, do I want to live in a messy emerging market or do I want to live in what you regard as a pristine developed market? Make that choice. So,
0: So there's a lot of criticism being leveled at the ruling party, at the ANC. I mean, you must have seen yeah. the rounds uh, Rob Hersov's recent video uh, saying that Man- Madiba would have voted for the, the DA. How do you feel about the politics of the country? I mean, because if you are pro- South Africa you pro invest South Africa you've got to believe that then the politics are actually okay
1: no so so what you've seen is you know it's always every time i've seen a crisis unfold wherever that crisis is it always gets worse and looks worse before it gets fixed the reason is you're starting to understand the nature of that crisis So, if i look at the corruption issue we think we thought we understood state capture and corruption but we didn't until the zondo commission came around we had no idea and i suspect we still have no idea particularly when it comes to local government corruption and we probably will have no idea so as you delve into this you uncover more of what's gone wrong and then you recognize the extent of the problem but that is part of getting the situation corrected i would say the same for the local government del- service delivery is appalling. If you look at the pictures of sewerage, sanitation, water, all of that. But you've got to you've got to confront that in order to get past it. And I think there's at least that awareness starting to build. The second is you've got to you've got to be fair. Would government have done partial privatization of SAA? Would government have done Anybody can build a power unit of 100 megawatts with no license agreement. What government have done? Let's hive off Transnet and get people to invest in P2 in, in the Durban. These are significant changes. And when you delve into the discussion around that, there's a recognition that it's it's what we got. To, the ANC has got to do that. And yes, of course, the ideology runs out when the money runs out. So the politics is changing because the money's run out. But That's the way things change generally around the world. You need that crisis to get the change. So I think that the very extreme negative view on South Africa is not fully acknowledging the changes that have been implemented and can make a difference. That doesn't mean there aren't risks. they are massive risks.
0: No, but it's good. It's good to have a conversation where some positivity is coming to light because at the moment it's very much an awful down scenario out there and everybody is lambasting leadership left, right, and center. Okay, let's talk a bit about now, so we mentioned Evergrande, uh, you mentioned Evergrande and the, the risk in China. There appears to be something else bubbling in China, potentially another Evergrande. you got wind of this?
1: No, I don't have wind of it directly, but um, my my sense of it is that you know, if you just stand back from China, China is, it has to have many of these imbalances within the system, many, because it grew at such a rapid pace using a huge amount of debt in state-owned enterprises that are essentially bankrupt. It relied heavily on the property sector, on infrastructure that wasn't required. There are a lot of those things that have gone on. And, and They decided, the politicians decided that this was something they're willing to embark on in order to really stimulate the growth and get employment and, and deal with the massive social dynamics within China. I've got no doubt there's a myriad of these types of imbalances. I think that if you look at the changes that have been implemented, the common prosperity change, the scaling back of electricity to deal with carbon emissions, the scaling back of steel, cement, aluminium. I think all of those are reflecting some of that reality the change in china's demographics in other words it's saying that we've got to look at quality growth not just growth we it's not just about how fast we can grow how many people we, can we employ it's about what what can we sustain over the longer term and what does the situation look like and how much international pressure do we have etc plus at the same time let's not forget that there is an element of not wanting to give up the cultural values within the Communist Party. And so that that element is coming back. And I think what they're trying to do is to steady the environment and create probably a lower average growth, but in the end, a better quality growth. Now, in doing that, there are probably many evergreens that will come out. The question is, how do you deal with that? How does the government deal with that? And from what I can see, the government, I doubt is going to simply allow these to go bankrupt in a disorganized fashion. So the question is how do you find a way to manage them without without overtly supporting the rich bosses who created the mess, but at the same time not allowing the system to fail. And I think they will find that balance. But it's going to it's going to unsettle markets no doubt.
0: Absolutely going to unsee some markets. I just want to get your thoughts on this power crisis that is taking hold of the, the, the northern hemisphere and also in China. Um, obviously, in the northern hemisphere, you've got a shortage of LNG, liquid natural gas. Uh, what yes. is your view on this? And, and again, what does it mean
1: for oil? So it means higher prices for oil. Most most of these things, um, most of these supply disruptions um, simply mean higher prices for a while because, you know, there has been the stimulus of demand. That stimulus of demand has been reasonably effective and probably excessive relative to the supply constraints. And any time you've got a mismatch between supply and demand, you'll have a price effect. And I think those price effects are... Are going to persist if if you look at daily data coming out it's telling us more about these supply disruptions and when I look at the energy sector it's in the midst of that it's not the only sector, but I would expect that um, that's not going to be resolved anytime soon and, and and if you if you fail go back a while we said no these supply disruptions would be resolved in three to six months. It is three to six months and there's no indication of supply disruptions being resolved. And when you talk to many of the companies, they're telling you this can still be months away. So I think that we've got to understand that there's this price pressure or this price wave that is going to go through the system. But then you're going to have a number of um, odd effects. The one is you're going to have a very hard buy base for these prices, and then you're going to have deflation in a number of categories. Very sharp deflation. That's ahead. And it's going to mess with our minds around uh, financial markets. And the second is that as you go through these wave of prices, which is still very real, it's going to affect demand. It's going to push back on demand because it becomes unaffordable. And I'm not sure that companies are going to give in and give higher wages in order to facilitate that demand and therefore entrench inflation. And so you may end up with a situation where, um the growth rates start to slow more than what you anticipate therefore i'm very nervous about financial markets going forward because i think valuations on the whole are stretched and you're going to find that these price pressures persist but potentially demand slows just slows more than you think uh the central banks have to respond to some extent by putting up uh, monetary policy and it leaves financial markets very vulnerable after an environment where they thought money was easy forever. We are,
0: are we looking at a scenario where financial markets are as vulnerable as they were in 2008, Kevin? Or is that alarmist?
1: Yes. No, we are. I don't. I think so. Because I think we became so complacent about easy money, about endless QE, about endless low rates, about inflation never being an issue. Um, all of these, I think, we've just become massively complacent. And and even when, and you can see that complacency when the the supply backlog started to emerge, the immediate narrative was, don't worry, it's transitory. Don't worry, it'll be over in the next three to six months because we didn't even want to entertain the prospect that inflation would become a problem. I think that we've missed that and inflation is a problem. And the second element is that we're not, I think, factoring in what do those disruptions do to the functioning of the system, not just to the price, but to the actual performance of an economy. They undoubtedly undermine the performance. And, and, and yet they seem to persist. Every day I read about another country having another company having some sort of supply um, difficulty.
0: Well, I mean, I I can't let you go. I know this is rather alarmist. I mean, we've gotten to a point where you said there's another global financial crisis in the offing. Am I, again, I mean, you're nodding. Is this the reality that we are facing? Kevin Lings, you are
1: worrying me (laughs) hugely. So what I'm trying to suggest is that we, the financial markets have become too complacent. Valuations haven't been been, uh, focused on. We haven't paid attention to any of those sorts of fundamentals. And we kind of just accepted the ongoing narrative from, from the Federal Reserve that, that inflation is going to be transitory and that it will all be fine. And and what happens when we wake up and we realize more and more that's not the case? And therefore, there must be some risk in financial assets. And you've seen that play out in global bond markets. You've seen that, I would say, uh, more recently in some equity markets. And it's And it's going to feel more and more. Where do I hide? Where do I where do I avoid stagflation? How do if stagflation becomes more of a theme, which asset protects me against stagflation? Very difficult to find a safe haven with that. And therefore, you've got to be aware that markets could come off more than you uh, currently expect.
0: All right. So we're going to pick up this conversation same time again next Thursday part two of the turmoil that we're potentially facing. Kevin Lings, thank you so much for your time. Kevin Lings is the Chief Economist at Stanlib.
1: Pleasure.